Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And uh, this is episode number 76. So pretty exciting. Uh, kind of took a couple of weeks off, had a, had a few things going on. So um, kind of exciting to get back to the podcast and, and see how things have changed. And it's just kind of amazing that we're still in this morass where these these domestic terrorist red guard hooligans whatever you want to call them have really got the country in their grip i mean they've got they've got a lot of these liberal mayors and liberal governors in their grip too and what those guys are starting to realize is hey they're the enemy to these people also as much as anyone conservative or middle of the road or however you want to say it these people are anti-establishment. And even if you're liberal, you're part of the establishment. And I think they're just kind of starting to understand that. Um, they should have known it from the beginning. It's not that these people have a legitimate... When you're burning, looting, you know, creating a riot, shooting these, these um, you know, fireworks bombs at the police and all the rest of this, this is not a protest. And even even Fox News, you know, some of the people on there still call them, well, the protesters, they are not protesters. They are criminals. Make no mistake. Um, they can call them, you know, it's like calling a it's like calling a, a, a shoplifter an undocumented shopper. You know, it's there. There's no there's no two ways about it. They're crooks. They are they are absolutely criminals and there are criminal intent criminal destruction and and you know you have people falling into it who are just so stupid I, I mean i'm amazed how some people are so stupid take for example the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff this general milley who you know looks like a hardcore dude and all the rest of this but he's just another political animal that's just climbed up through the military's ranks when you see a guy like this and and what I'm about to explain, hey, there's no real there's no real secret to why we won World War II against the two most powerful nations on earth militarily, which were Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. In three and a half years, we smoked them. We 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 absolutely crushed both of them. And why we've been in Afghanistan for 20 years. It's the generals. It's, it's, you've got to look at these guys just are, they're not, they're not what we need. Here's, here's an example. Okay, there are a lot of military bases throughout the South, which are named after Confederates. A lot of these Confederates did serve in the U.S. Army, you know, before and, and during the Mexican War. So, you know, there's always kind of been this kind of mixed legacy and, and, uh, but, as a way to kind of heal the division of the Civil War, uh, when World War I came around and we needed a big, big push, we were going to put a lot of men overseas and had the war gone into 1919 or 1920, uh, we would have, it would have been a pretty fearsome contest. So a lot of these bases in the South were named after former Confederate generals out of respect for Southern heritage and as a sign to show that there was unity. And, um, um, you know, nobody really pays much attention. I guess everybody knew Fort Lee in Virginia is named after Robert E. Lee. I suppose Fort Jackson in South Carolina is named after Stonewall Jackson. I haven't really looked it up. 
I know Fort Hood is named after John Bell Hood. And then there's Fort Bragg, which is named after Braxton Bragg. And I forget who what Benning's first name was. But in the hundred years that we've had these posts, you know, there, there's kind of this arc. Like if you ever trained or were stationed at Fort Benning or Fort Bragg, you have a connection with somebody who might have been stationed there or trained there or lived there as a dependent 30 or 40 years before or since. There's this kind of there's this kind of bond. Like, yeah, I was at Bragg. Yeah, I know Bragg. Blah blah blah. When I was at Bragg, it was this way. And you know, all of that is kind of a kind of part of the lore. Well, General Milley has taken exception to this and has caved to the I guess it's Black Lives Matter and, and all these other kind of anarchist groups. And he was saying, well, it was just a political decision back then, and we'll rename them. It's a political decision now. And they were traitors, you know, they those those people were traitors. Well, I, I question and publicly call out General Milley that he's I don't even think he's smart enough to know a train a traitor if he tripped over one, because he did. Does the name Bo Bergdahl ring any bells? Well, Milley was in charge of that fiasco of whether this guy should be charged for treason or anything. And the bottom line is, the bottom line is, Milley slow rolled that investigation so that Bergdahl walked without serving any time or anything. A guy who defected to the enemy, deserted in the face of the enemy, I mean, just a clear-cut case, clear-cut case. And Millie slow-rolled it. These are the same people who've also, you know, they've kind of given Chelsea Manning a break, you know, the Democratic, you know, Barack Obama pardons Chelsea Manning, uh, who used to have a male first name when he was a male. I mean, this is, this is ridiculous. So it's not like these people are paragons of what is, treason and what isn't. I would say that they're not they're not fit and they're not suitable and they're not justified in making any kind of statement like that. I would also say that I have no problem with, you know, we should have a Fort Washington and a Fort Patton and a Fort Omar Bradley. We should have those things somewhere. And the problem though with renaming any of the existing forts or army installations is that, well, Washington was a slaveholder. He won't pass muster for uh, for the Black Lives Matter and all the other radical groups. He won't pass muster. He was a slave owner. The next guy, uh, Patton, well, his ancestors were in the Confederate Army, so clearly we can't have a Fort Patton. And we also can't have a Fort Omar Bradley simply because... Omar Bradley was a five-star general in a segregated army, you know. And if you go back and look at a lot of army generals during the, the period of segregation, they may have said or written things that, you know, will disqualify them from having an installation named after them. So it's ridiculous. Renaming things and trying to be more politically collect, correct is ridiculous. I'm sorry I'm speaking and, and kind of mispronouncing a few things today. I had a medical procedure yesterday, and there's a sore spot on my tongue, which is which is hurting me when I talk a little bit. So forgive me if uh, if I sound like I am off the drugs, though. There, there's no more anesthetic or anything. So I am of clear mind. I'm just not speaking very well. But these guys are just, 
are the, these generals and these, you know, Esper, this Mike Esper, the Secretary of Defense, they're the ones who are, are caving to just the worst elements of this urban insurrection we're seeing. And I'm just, I'm, I can't believe it. I mean, army bases are named what they're named. And I don't know of anybody who really cares. I mean, I don't know of anybody in the service. I'm sure they can drag up someone who will try to get attention and say it makes a difference. It does not make a difference. And, you know, we, we really have to take a good hard look at who and what we're promoting to general officer. Because, frankly, I don't think we're very impressed. We don't have general patents anymore. Look at these guys who were serving in the Trump administration. Mattis turned out to be a turd, just a turd. I forget who the guy who was chief of staff was. He was another four-star general. Um, he was another idiot, another idiot. And now we have General Milley. So between Milley, Mattis, and I forget who the chief of staff was. He was such a he was a forgettable dude. You know, it's like it's like having the three stooges in charge of uh, a significant portion of the government. I mean, that's why Trump has rooted these guys out. Milley's still around, but I'm thinking that after the election. If Trump prevails, that uh, Milley will be gone, Esper will be gone. He can he then can take an axe and get rid of some of this deadwood, and maybe we can find some better generals and better administrators somewhere who can help run our military. And it kind of brings me back to another point, which is the situation in St. Louis, where the couple, the McCluskeys, were clearly within the law, clearly defending their home, clearly defending themselves against a mob which had, you know, already engaged in property destruction, was was hurling threats, was probably on some level armed, at least with, with impact weapons and a few other things. However, the, the imbecile prosecutor for that area, this Kim Gardner, has said, well, these people were just peacefully protesting and they came under a violent assault by the McCluskeys. First of all, there was no violence there. We have it. Now, there could have been, had these people tried to swarm and, and kill them, um, these, these anarchists tried to, if they tried to pull something, yeah, there could have been some real bloodshed there. And AR-15, it, you know, he looked like he had them at at least 30 or 40 feet. Uh, he would have had reaction time, been able to shoot. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is they were peaceful. They just wanted people not to trash their home. And all of us who have homes, even a even a small, modest one like mine, you know, we don't want somebody trashing it. I don't need their their lousy tagger artwork and, and graffiti on my house. And I will prevent that. And so will so will everybody else. And uh, so anyway, these people did not assault these protester anarchist types they just didn't do it yet this kim gardner gets on tv and she's got this it was amazing watching it she had this disdain frown on her face and i go you know i've seen that before maybe i've seen this person before you know that was a it was really a profound every time she's photographed she has this really profound frown on her face and she's she's you know always you know kind of staring down i, I thought where have I seen this person before? Did she have some other kind of office or was she something else? Then I realized <laughs> during the uh, initial parts of the pandemic, I was watching some old science fiction movies 
and I had watched the original Planet of the Apes. And the if you know the Planet of the Apes, very quickly, the apes kind of develop a parallel society so that Homo sapiens, meaning people, are not the dominant, you know, great ape species on the planet. And the apes are kind of, they've got, you know, science and weapons and, and things. And the humans have actually kind of regressed and don't have the power of speech anymore and kind of live pretty primitive. So there, there's one character in it. Now I'm talking the original movie called Dr. Zaius. And Dr. Zaius hates humans and he always has whenever he talks about them he always has this terrible frown on his face and condescending and he talks a lot of you know just nonsensical stuff just the same way kim gardner does she is the dr zaius of this movement and she's trying to demonize just the way dr zaius demonized the homo sapiens in planet of the apes she's trying to demonize people who don't believe in her serious left-wing agenda and support these anarchists. And it's a criminal. And, uh, you know, when the president of the United States and the governor of Missouri say, you bring charges against these people, we're going to, we're going to pardon them. When that happens, you know, you know that it's, it's, she's on the wrong side of history. She's on the wrong side of this. And yet you still see this frown, this ugly little condescending frown on her face. And you just have to realize she is so heavily radicalized. She doesn't even know how wrong she is. She won't even consider it. Won't even consider it. So it's amazing. We have Dr. Zaius is now persecuting the humans. So there we go. So life does imitate art to a degree, I suppose. Okay, then there's you know, I, I'm, I'm not gloating or I'm not gleeful, but, you know, some punk anarchist in Austin, Texas, and his name was Garrett Foster, the guy, you know, these people think, you know, th this is for keeps. When you threaten someone's life, it can turn into a very, very serious situation, and it's for keeps. So it appears, and, and again, this is under investigation, and more, more facts may come out, but the initial facts are pretty clear cut. And, and we've all kind of been there where you take a turn and you realize maybe you turned into something, turned down a road you shouldn't have turned down on. That's happened to me in foreign countries, not necessarily here. But somebody turned into, all of a sudden, the streets blocked by protesters, meaning anarchists. And uh, they, they wind them, they found that they've actually turned themselves into the middle of a, of a, of a riot. Or a riot that's that's uh, getting ready to start, and so people surround the car and they start beating on it, which is threatening. You know that's threatening, and everybody knows it. Then this dude, this Garrett Foster dude with an AK-47, comes running up and evidently pointed it at the at the driver of the car, who produced a concealed carry handgun and engaged and basically killed this guy. And, you know, first of all, you got to be pretty, that, that's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, um, bold move to, to pull out your pistol and, and gun down a dude with an AK-47 who's obviously, if not threatening, going to try to do you some harm. But, you know, kudos to him. Then he, he, uh, he drove off and escaped and turned himself in later to the police. And apparently everything's been taken into evidence and they're taking in all the, the video and all that. But it appears that those are probably the facts of the case. Um, there'll be some anarchist liars 
who will say, oh, no, the guy in the car precipitated the incident. Whatever. Um, you know, anarchists are liars. They'll say anything. They have no respect for anything. So they have no respect for the truth either. But this guy got X'd, you know, and, and, uh, and rightfully so. You just can't run up to somebody's car and point an AK-47 at them um, and not expect that there could be some sort of move in return or some that would precipitate some other action that might be very, very dangerous. And these leftists that are running around, and a few of them have guns, a lot of them are phonies. I think I think a lot of them have either airsoft or they have like the 22 long rifle version of something that looks bigger, meaner, and scarier just so that they can, uh, you know, to them it's just kind of a prop, a totem, you know, that they're, they're carrying around. Well, there are people out there who are serious and uh, that's what happens when uh, when you cross one of them. So that's the that's the interesting part of all this. Um, you know, the only other political story is Joe Joe Biden, hapless Joe or sleepy Joe or Hyden Biden, whatever you want to call him. He's been running around. You know, he still hides in his house, afraid of the coronavirus. But he's made a few little pronouncements, and there are even a couple of, of BS uh, ads. Every time when I see one on TV, I just turn the sound down so that I don't even have to pollute my airwaves or sound waves with uh, Biden's talk. But, you know, he's got a lot to answer for, especially when it comes to this Hunter Biden dude. You know, guy got, they, they get all these exception to policies and waivers to get him into the Navy. And then he smokes, smokes crack or cocaine or something, gets caught on a drug test and kicked out. And uh, now he's got, you know, it was some DC stripper type woman who had a baby and now she's suing him. And, 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 and the weird part is, now this is creepy weird. The creepy weird part is, he apparently linked up with this woman after he had broken up with his dead brother's widow. So his brother died in like 2013 or 2014, whatever it was. And Hunter Biden is like in 2000, like a year later, is dating his widow. Does Is it just me or does that strike you as creepy, creepy, creepy weird? That's just creepy weird to me. So this guy's a creepy weird dude. And and that's when you put, and that's not even mentioning all the corruption with China, $1.5 billion and then, you know, some ungodly amount of salary from some energy company in the Ukraine. You know, God only knows what that is. So this is some creepy weird dude from a creepy weird family that's being headed by some senilic old man who's running for president. I mean, it couldn't get worse. It just couldn't get worse. Ah, but now let's get on to some gun stuff. You know, a lot of the podcasts now, there's so much 2A in politics that, you know, you, you want to hear something about guns and you're just not hearing it. And I guess for almost 20 minutes, I've been guilty of the same thing. But we're going to get down to some gun stuff here. First is a couple of gun culture things. Um, did anybody see, and I don't know how old it is, I think it's less than a year old, this this nine-hole reviews. Um, it's two guys, and they actually, you know, they take rifles and they shoot them out to 500 yards, and they're entertaining to watch. Um, it, it's it, The production is very good quality, and, 
you know, it's it's really really pretty good overall. You know, for for YouTube kind of content. I don't know that it's ever going to go anywhere, but it's it's you know, it's kind of decent. But it was funny to me that they took an at one of the Brownells M16A1s and uh, they couldn't hit a target of 500 yards with it. And they had all kinds of reasons for this. But I will tell them what the reasons are. Number one, they probably incorrectly zeroed the gun. Um, to, to correctly zero an M16A1, you have to put the you have to put the rear sight on L and then you, you can sight it dead on at 25 meters or 25 yards and you're good you're good out to 250 but you have to flip the the uh, aperture back to the uh, regular range not the long range the one marked with l is the long range one so or you can use the regular one and zero at 42 42 yards um you know that's that's pretty that's pretty common also. Or shoot about an inch low at 25. You can do that too. But the, the key is they they he didn't know what the what the long range aperture was supposed to do. He absolutely did not know. Um, he kind of said, well, at about 400 yards, he flips it. Well, you consult a few a few references, and it's it's the Colt original Colt factory reference for the AR-15 rifle, the one that looks like the M16A1, is that you use the long-range aperture for three to 500. Now, what that means is it's not just a dead hold at three and a dead hold at four and a dead hold at five. You you will have to hold over because it's a flip sight. It's not, it's not a sight that is adjustable or have a lot of different settings on it for for those ranges so you will have to do some holdover remembering the m16a1 was really designed for zero to 300 meter engagements and the the absolute you know the maximum range they put on it of 460 yard, uh, meters which is 500 yards is basically designed because that's what the human eye can accommodate 50% of the time looking at a man-sized target that's moving from say left to right or right to left okay you'll see that at about 50% of the time at that distance and that's what they thought that you you obviously can't hit what you can't see and that's what you can see 50% beyond that it it drops way off so that it's very difficult for the unaided eye to see it and if you have eyes like mine it's probably impossible so, uh, you know what, the reason they couldn't get the rifle to perform is because it's not really a rifle issue, it's a training issue, because they just simply don't have enough trigger time on some of the guns they test. And that's, that's really the reason, that's really a big reason why they get differing results. A lot of these weapons will essentially perform the same, and we'll talk about that later in a question. But, um, you know, even these guys who think they know what they're doing, when you watch them and then you actually check the references, they don't know what they're doing. The Army said in the technical manual for the M16A1 that really the long-range sight was only good for three to 400 meters. And it doesn't really address anywhere 500-yard um, or 500-meter shooting. So it's... Uh, you know, when you do that, that the weapon was specifically designed 
really to shoot at the maximum of 400 yards. 500 if you're lucky and train with it and, and can do it. But really 400 was probably the uh, limitation, which is well beyond what most combat ranges are, which is well beyond. So the, yeah, I would say that sometimes the weapon just isn't suited for the course of fire. If you're taking a, you know, if you're taking SBR at 10 inches and think you're going to hit something at 500 yards, well, you might be bitterly disappointed. And, um, you know, it's the same thing with the A1. The A1 was designed to excel at zero to 300 meter shots. So that's, that's kind of my take on that nine hole thing there. I actually like them a lot better than in range TV. I'll tell you that it just, um, you know, I think in range is kind of peaked and gone. I still think in range TV has got a lot of, um, life left in it. If they can, if they can shift to something else besides pushing the, what would stoner do gamer gun and a few other things. Forgotten Weapons is, is really still in there, still producing some very interesting stuff. But, you know, at a certain point, they're just kind of kind of run out of things to do. I don't know what the plan is. At a certain point, it all becomes so obscure that nobody can really uh, have a lot of interest in it. And the, the audience will precipitously shrink. So it'll be interesting to see how all that uh, plays out. But I like the nine hole ones. At least, hey, it's interesting to watch and it's interesting... Uh, uh, to watch people shoot and see how different things kind of do, even if you don't agree with the, the methodology. Okay, that brings us to another subject that that's, no one's really talking about, but I think is going to be out there. And that is, you know, with all these things going on, ammo shortages, gun shortages, and all the rest of it, I think the 22 long rifle is going to go through a resurgence. And the reason I say that is because when you hit times like this and you're not really a gun person or you're not a, maybe you're a shotgunner, or maybe you're a waterfowl hunter or something else. Um, you know, having a 1022 and some 25 round mags and a brick of ammo would be very comforting. Um, it would be very comforting right now if you have those things. Again, it's not a military-grade rifle and all the rest of it. And all the people, if you'd said this a year ago, people on forums would go crazy. That'll get you killed on the street. Well, maybe not having anything will get you killed on the street. And maybe having something is better than nothing. So I think that there's a real, real resurgence of that, um, especially now with a I'll use the nine millimeter argument. Now with all this improved ammo out there, and there is some improved, used to be mini mags were the hottest thing going with. Now there are a whole lot of other um, improved performance 22 rounds, which may not be as, it's certainly not a 45, it's certainly not a 5.56, but at least it's something. And I think that it can uh, definitely make the difference. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that having a firearm, 90% of it is having a firearm. So um, I think it's going to be a resurgent market in both, possibly both handguns and, uh, um, and in some sort of more defensive capable rifles. Something set up a little more for defense. And uh, 
I would be surprised. That's a trend I'm going to keep looking for. Of course, you know, I have to mention Colt, those geniuses of marketing. Remember how it was less than a year ago they said, well, the, the, the AR market is saturated. We're pulling out. Well, the AR market isn't so saturated anymore. You really can't find them and you can't find the components for them. Uh, you know, you used to be able to buy a lot of lower receivers and, and then made it to the upper receiver, which was tailored to your needs. Can't, it's getting harder and harder to do. And now that we don't, thanks to Remington, we don't have DPMS anymore or even TAPCO anymore because Remington and Bushmaster, Remington bought those up. And then uh, now Remington is, you know, kind of filing for bankruptcy. I think they're not going to go under simply because they produce ammunition. Ammunition is in short supply right now. So, and they're going to be getting their price for it. So Remington will be around because of the ammunition. But DPMS, unfortunately, is gone. They turned out good AR stuff. They really did. Um, same thing with Bushmaster. So I hope that some of these other manufacturers get a chance to uh, ramp up and, and uh, take the market share. But it looks like Colt, true to their nature, has left the market at exactly the wrong time. Well, that's it for the political part and the commentary. Now my favorite part, which is questions and answers. And the first question comes from our listener, Clown Bear, and it basically addresses ammunition shortages. What are the ammunition shortages in your area? What are you seeing on the store shelves is essentially the question. And the answer is I'm not seeing very much at all. Um, you know... There's stuff, there's stuff in there, and it's for hunting calibers and things. I think you can find some stuff in Walmart. You can even find some of that stuff in Cabela's. But when you're talking 9mm, 5.56, 7.62 NATO, and a lot of other pistol calibers and things, you're just not seeing it. People bought it, and it's gone. And what's going to keep it gone is, due to COVID, I'm not sure that these factories have really ramped up production and I don't know what the lead time to import ammo is. I, you know, you would think that the best thing in the world you could do is have a have an empty freighter and load it with tall nine millimeter ammo, sail it to wherever you need to, process the documents, and start shipping and selling that stuff. Um, I don't know what the lead time on that is, but I would I would think that you know yet again we're going through one of these shortages. Some of these people are going to have to do some warehousing and. I hate to say it's stockpiling or have some sort of some sort of supply line or supply chain where they can quickly get foreign made ammunition. I mean, it's just going to have to be. And now even components are drying up. Primers have dried up. Powder has been kind of hard to get. Uh, you do have to buy it in bulk. I think the last buy I did was um, eight pounds of, uh, of powder in a keg and it's only a short manage a short amount of time before projectiles and other things start drying up you know so there you are um 7.62 by 39 i haven't seen that the one thing that was always supposed to be available because we get it from foreign sources and and uh, they're pretty steady suppliers well i haven't seen that either so i i would say that we're in that same boat uh the guys who reload are kings and you know that's that's where it is right now if you reload and have 
some some components, you are a king. You can keep going. If you don't have it, you're you're gonna be done. You're just gonna be done. Um, but as far as being around here, I think it's pretty much hit and miss. You never know what they're gonna get in, when they're gonna get it in. So there's no real no real good answer. I don't think there's unfortunately there's no magical place I can go to pick up what I really want to buy. So see how that all shakes out. Okay, here's another question. This came up. We, we hold military rifle matches a couple times a year. And uh, which rifles dominate in your military rifle matches? Okay, I, I kind of get this question in different forms. And uh, the answer will be surprising. Uh, one, one gentleman stated, well, well, hey, these Swiss rifles dominate. And they don't. I've processed all the all the scores and everything since 2014 on this, and no one rifle really dominates. Now shooters do. A shooter, a, a really good marksman, can bring different rifles, and and basically finish in the same place. Whether they finish in the the top third, the bottom third, or wherever it is they go. The um, the conditions under which we shoot are somewhat, they're more realistic, but they don't tend to differentiate the rifles. And, and here's what I will say. We, we shoot a, basically a, a full-size B-27 at 200 yards. Now you think, hey, that's a pretty large, generous target, but given the sighting systems on the manually operated military rifles, stuff made up to about 1945, that is a very challenging target to shoot well on. However, when you're talking about World War One or World War Two, and probably even Korean War, that was a very, very realistic combat range. Maybe even kind of at the extreme end of the combat range. So, you know, the, the, some of the stories of, of people shooting six or seven or eight hundred yards and hitting hitting the enemy, I'm sure that those things probably anecdotally happened here and there, everywhere. But that wasn't the common experience. That wasn't the common performance. And uh, hitting something at 200 yards is difficult enough. And it's it's definitely uh, a challenge. And the people who usually score the best can bring almost any rifle. Uh, almost any rifle in that category and do equally well. One of the highest scores we ever had was shot by an 1886 LaBelle. So there, there you go. Um, and it also helps prove my contention that shooters win matches, rifles really don't in this particular case. I always, my favorite rifle to shoot is the 1917. I just like it. I like the way it looks. I like the way it feels. I like the way it shoots. I like the, the sights. And again, my great uncle was an inspector at one of the factories that made them. So it's always been something that's kind of dear to me. I really, really like it. Uh, one of the other things, uh, I do like the 1903. Um, maybe it's I'm biased towards them because I have experience with them. But other rifles, I've shot them too. And I've even shot my uh, Martini Henry on the, on the course. And, um, you know, I would say that the rifles... And ammunition quality are the two biggest things. I think the, the only reason the Moisin Nagant doesn't do as well is because a lot of the a lot of the guys who are real shooting buffs don't 
really want to shoot that in the competition. And I think a lot of the ammunition out there for it is less than optimal. Uh, I haven't tried the PPU ammunition. I assume that would be better. But a lot of it is just surplus ball, which does not particularly shoot very well. And, and even if it's post-war stuff, you know, the Soviet Union was was cranking that stuff out. And they had a very, very realistic view of what combat ranges were. I mean, their World War II combat experience shaped a lot of what goes on today everywhere. So, um, you know, it's a, it, the Moisin is actually a very good rifle. And we got another question on that later. So, uh, but I, I find that it's the shooter, not the rifle. And even the most primitive rifles can shoot well, which brings me back to a contention that I made in an earlier podcast, which is, you know, the United States could have fought World War I with the Krag rifle and carbine. I mean, we could have. Um, and the outcome would not have been any different. The, uh, the British could have used the Longley. The French did use 1886 Labelle. The, the Russians did use the 91 Moisenegat. The, the Italians used the 91 Carcano. All those weapons were, you know, some of those first-generation bolt guns were not as as well thought of as the later generation ones, the 98 Mauser, the 1903 Springfield, and a few other things that are out there. But actually, they were very effective, and they were used in both world wars, and it doesn't really matter. Um, what are, our friend of the podcast brings a Gewehr 88, a, a rifle that does not have a reputation for being innovative, advanced, or anything else, but it was really good in 1888, and actually, had the Germans had that rifle in World War One, I, I don't think it would have made a bit of difference. A bit of difference. The 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 niceties between the 98 Mauser and the 88 Gewehr, um, Gewehr 88, weren't big enough when you're talking broad front armies, thousands of men firing. It just wasn't going to be that big of a deal. And that's how the French got away with using the Labelle. In the actual pit of combat, close, all that, all the theoreticals that people like to discuss uh, basically go out the window. And it just comes down to working the bolt, pulling the trigger, being able to get a sight picture, being able to hit your target. You know, that's what it really comes down to. Yes, some load a little faster than others and, and all the rest of it. But uh, the stories you hear about how outclassed the Krag was in the Spanish-American War, when you actually read it, you don't really see that at all. The reason the United States dumped the Krag was because they knew it was a design dead end. They knew that there was no way it could be reloaded faster. And so they, they went with a Mauser system rifle which they thought would be a lot better. In, in practical terms, I'm not sure that it, it was such an advantage that it really, really would have um, made that much of a difference. But that being said, I'm glad that the 1903 Springfield came out. It's one of my favorite rifles. But, you know, the, the Krag gets an unduly bad reputation. Um, same thing with anything. Uh, the 91 Argentine does not have a it has an okay reputation, but nothing stellar. And I think that's an excellent rifle. I think that any European power could have had that rifle in World War One and been very, very pleased with it. Um, I certainly think so. So there's a whole lot of 
the, even though the rifles are maybe differ in details, their, their function and their usually their quality of manufacture and everything is good enough so that they perform very, very similarly. And a lot of the big differences are, are in our heads. They're just in our heads. And uh, so that's that's part of what I'm seeing in these matches. Now, if we extended the range out to 500 or 600 yards and shot what I consider to be kind of combat weapons at target shooting marksman competition distances, I think you will see you will see some things happen. I think you would see the better quality rifles like the Swiss rifles, and I say better quality kind of, a, I don't really mean to say that, but you know, they were not produced under the wartime conditions. So there may be, they may be better maintained. They didn't get the harder use and they did have a very high standard of manufacture. Uh, you may see those, this, the 6.5 Swedes and the 1903s, you might see them start to distance from the pack. You might, but again, it's dependent on the shooter. If you can't shoot it, you can't shoot it. Um, if you had an all Springfield match, and this is what proves it, if you have an all Springfield match, you don't have all the scores just dense packed up at the top. Same thing with you have a Swiss rifle match. You don't have all of the all of the scores, you know, just packed at the top within a point or two of each other, which is what people will lead you to believe. You you actually have the spectrum of scores that you have in any other shooting competition. Um some people shoot very well. Some people are not having a good day. Some people are just starting and learning. So you're going to have that, that spectrum of scores. So no one rifle really dominates our competition. And I don't know that one rifle actually could unless you tailored it specifically to the strength of one particular rifle, either by range or rapid fire or some other um some other sort of uh, uh, faults metric that would that would slew it. As a matter of fact, when I was in the infantry officer advance course, I wrote a paper, and it basically said that. It basically said, look, you know, the big leap was from single shot breech loaders to these magazine fed weapons, and that was a that was a pretty big leap, but it was a huge leap to go into the auto loaders. And especially the M1. The M1 was one of the first and one of the best battle rifle semi-automatics out there because it had a superior loading system. Uh, it never gets enough credit. They they talk about it a little bit on in range and a few other places, but put the put the M1 loading system against the Mauser style loading system that the the Tokarev SVT40, the SAFN, um, and a few other ones had. Put those up against the Garand system, and it's just no—it's just no choice. There's no choice. The Garand system is so much better. So the Garand was the huge leap, and and not that it was supreme for forever. It base, it basically was was again evolutionary process moved and moved, but um, you know at the time it was the leap forward and everything else was pretty close in performance until the Garand came out and even up against later designed semi-automatics the Garand does very 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 well
so that's kind of that's kind of the wandering <laughs> um, thing on military rifles. Uh, a related question that I promised to get to is why is the Moisson the Gantt rifle so unloved? I'll, I'll tell you there's several reasons. And the first reason is ammunition is not very good. I mean, it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's kind of ball ammunition, but it really doesn't compare with U.S. ball ammunition. It's not as not quite as accurate from what I've seen and what I've experienced. So it's ammunition and, you know, you can get different weights of the, you buy the surplus stuff, you, you sort of know what you're getting, but it's also about who made it. It was made a lot of different places, um, different bullet weights and things. So your mileage may vary with, you know, surplus you can wind up. Haven't tried the PPU enough. I've tried the tall ammunition, which is actually quite good ammunition there 148 is actually quite good um shoots out of a psl very well i can i can tell you that but um yeah it's a it's you know the modern the more modern you get with the ammunition i think the better off you get and i my suspicion is 148 grain is the way to go uh, i think that's just going to shoot very very well in those those guns um another reason it's not as popular is they usually do not have first-rate triggers. It's usually a very heavy trigger. A lot of that is just mechanical design, and sometimes that is is something that was wanted. Uh, you know, that's a safety feature. A heavy trigger pull um, is it was looked upon as as kind of one of the the safety features, which is why the G3 has such a the G3 semi-automatic rifle that the Germans used for decades uh, had a very heavy pull. That was something they actually put in the specification. So number two, number one is the ammo. Number two is the the trigger pull. Number three, number three is that the fact of the matter is most Moisin Nagants we see either are wartime production guns or they've got wartime production replacement parts. And some of those bolts and a few of those things have got machine marks on them and are very, very uh, heavy. Um, you know, so they're, they're a little bit harder to work. And the mainspring, that, that uh, firing pin spring in there, is a strong, strong spring. It was designed so that you could be in Siberia and it could be very, very cold. And that rifle was going to, you know, hit that firing pin was going to hit that primer with authority. You know, they, they had... They had the pan climactic thing too. You know, you could be down in Sebastopol on the Black Sea where it's really nice all the time, or you could be up in northern Siberia where it's not so nice all the time, and the rifle had to work everywhere. So, you know, that those kind of things were, were done. Another problem we have here in the States is a lot of the guns we received, either the chambers are rough or they have, in spite of all the cleaning, they still have some lacquer or some dried residue in the chambers, which causes sticking, especially with the uh, steel-cased ammunition. And it takes more than a good cleaning. Sometimes you might have to get you might have to get some uh, um, valve grinding compound or some some rouge, jeweler's rouge or something, and put it on a uh, brush and get it in there to get some of that stuff out and smooth smooth out that chamber a little bit. So that's the uh, that's the reason it's unloved. Now it was loved when they came in when they were anything that's cheap enough is loved. Okay, anything that's cheap is loved. When SKSs 
were $80 or sub $100, we'll say, or even sub $150. There were all these people on, on different forums and in different articles saying, the SKS is so much better than the AK, and aren't we lucky because we can buy them? And my survival group, we bought a case of them, and we're all good, and, and blah, 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 blah. Um, they loved it because it was cheap, not because it was better, and they convinced themselves it was better. The same thing happened with the Moise and the Gant. When that thing started rolling in, um, I paid <laughs> I paid $75 for an early, a very early one that I wanted. And everybody thought I was a chump. They're like, you can buy these things for like $45 to $49 all day long. Why would you pay a whole $25 more? Well, now it was, turns out it was a pretty good deal. But back then, you could buy the wartime 9130s for 40 to 50 bucks. And people were going, if you were a survivalist or you were just a person who didn't want to spend money, you would buy one of those things and they said, you can customize it. You can hit targets a thousand yards away and all the rest of this. Uh, because it was cheap, it was loved. Now that they're running like 300 to $400, not so much love anymore. Even though that's, you know, still not a bad price for a really cool surplus rifle. But it's not the 1990s anymore, the early 90s when these things were you know, they literally were just getting boatloads of them and they were super cheap. Um, same thing with the tins of ammo. You know, you could buy tins of ammo of $40 for, you know, 800 rounds or some ridiculous thing like that. If it's cheap, it's loved. If it's climbs in price, it's not. You know, the, that was the heyday. You know, you could buy Lee Enfields. I remember those things were selling for, uh, Carcanos were like 39 bucks, and I bought a really nice number five. I think I paid $65 for it. Um, Swedish uh, uh, M38 carbines were, I think I paid $80 for one. You know, I mean, those days are gone. They're just gone. Um, you might find somebody who just wants to get rid of old guns like that, but um, and might sell them cheap, but I don't know if they'll sell them that cheap. So that's why the Moisen again is unloved now. It is no longer cheap. So it does not appeal to the to the very frugal people who, who want to ascribe all kinds of supernatural abilities to it. Okay, what are the best firearms buys on the current market? Answer is nothing. Nada. Nothing. Um, and I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek. Hey, you know, if you have nothing, anything you can buy is a good deal. Um, the problem is you got to find bullets for it. And, you know, if you have nothing, a Heritage Rough Rider, which is sub 150 bucks, I mean, I see those things for sale for, what is it, 110 to about 150, depending on the, the model and the barrel length and all that. You have that and some 22, at least you have something. It's, it's, it's nothing Dirty Harry is gonna, gonna buy, but it's, it's, you're gonna, well, you will have something. You will have something. Uh, even the, my, my favorite one, and I mentioned this before, is the, the old Walther Creed, which looks like a, a high point, but it's got the Walther name on it. And they quit making those years, several years ago. But they're still hanging out. And at one time, you could pick up one of those for like 220 bucks. And I mean, they're clunky. 
They're they're ugly. They're clunky. You look at them and it just oh, it's it's got that. It's not quite as ugly as a high point, but it's 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 giving it some serious competition. Well, now those are four hundred bucks. They've gone up one hundred and eighty dollars, and they still have them. So what does that tell you? Um, so anything you can get, I just don't think there's going to be even a lot of low priced stuff out there. Um, stuff is flying off the shelves, and I think it's going to be this way. Uh, optimistically six months, but realistically another year. And uh, so it's it's if you're in the market, uh, one of the better buys you can get is a 12 gauge, you know, and get some bird shot. Be, be the old Joe Biden, Joe Biden's advice, get a shotgun, just get a shotgun. Uh, you know, that's that's actually a pretty viable, viable thing now because the stuff that's more suited for defense just appears to be flying off shelves. And, uh, you know, that's going to be a really difficult thing for people to, to kind of understand is this stuff is, is going, this stuff is going fast. And, uh, I don't know. I don't know where this is going to lead to. I, I, I have a very funny feeling that, the ammunition, pe people will realize that ammunition is not lead and brass and powders and primer. It's freaking gold. And you will see more people in the ammunition, in the ammunition industry. Uh, and I think that if they learn their lessons, they will actually, they will actually stockpile and keep a, keep a large reserve of ammunition so they can get it out and, uh, and go. And, and, you know, the funny part is the ammunition that, that's hardest to get is just 9mm FMJ. All these guys were saying, well, I shoot 9mm because of all the all the better ammunition out there now and all that. Hey, why are they then buying the, the FMJ stuff like it's going out of style? And the answer is because a lot of that stuff about the improved ammunition is talk. And that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. So anyway, those are the questions, and this is it for another edition of Old School Guns, our 76th podcast. And again, if you have a question, you can always leave it on Podbean um, in the comments section, and I will get to it. Or you can email it to me at kbmakel at aol.com. Yeah, aol.com. Isn't that an old address? Had it for a long time. So, but K-B-M-A-K-E-L at A-O-L dot com. And uh, go ahead and send it to me and I'll be happy to get after it. Um, but as of now, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>